and codes verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Welcome to Trek It Out with Priority One, and now your hosts. Hello, I'm Deck Green, and welcome to our next episode of Trek It Out. Joining me this evening is James Lee of Priority One Podcast and Kirsten Bayer, the author of the recent Star Trek Voyager novels. Hello, Kirsten. Hello. It's been lovely chatting to you uh, recently for the Q&A we did for my blog, and thank you very much again for doing that and all the time you've given us. And it's great to speak to you now. Well, it's great to be here, and I appreciate you guys taking the time. It's wonderful to have you join us. Thank you very much. I think that the first thing, uh, the obvious question to get that out of the way is how did you become involved in Star Trek and specifically Star Trek Voyager? Well, uh, okay. So 1994-ish, I graduated from UCLA. I had just gotten my master's in acting and I had just gotten married and um, hadn't really considered a career in writing was still more working on theater and film and TV stuff and but I had just some of the folks I had done graduate work with were actually working on Star Trek at the time and one of the directors was actually directing Star Trek Voyager so when Voyager premiered I ended up starting to watch it mainly to see her work and um, I don't know within four or five episodes I had an idea for a story and didn't know what to do with it. I mean, it was just kind of, you know, well, that's random. So I ran it by my husband, and he was like, yeah, that's really great, but what are you going to do, write it? And I said, <laughs> yeah, yes, I think I will. And so <laughs> I, ended up, I ended up just, you know, getting started writing that way and um, was able to get the material to, um, to the folks that I knew uh, was able to actually get, you know, scenes and pages from the scripts because I knew actors who were reading for the show. And um, so I kind of learned writing Star Trek, or actually I kind of learned writing by writing Star Trek and specifically Star Trek Voyager. It was the first thing I ever tried to do. Um, and it turned out they had at the time an open submission policy, so you didn't have to have an agent to send them a script, which is incredibly unusual for television. Um, but they had sort of learned over the years of doing Next Generation and Deep Space Nine that there were a lot of people out there who had really good ideas and they wanted to be able to cultivate that. So they actually had a process in their office to allow you to sign a release and send stuff in unsolicited. Um, so I did that with a couple of scripts that I wrote for them and both were rejected after, you know, God knows how long. And I sort of thought that, that was going to be the end of it, but I kept writing and I moved on to writing original material and screenplays and all kinds of other things. Um, it was several years after that that I got in touch with a lady named Heather Jarman, who was also a writer and had recently been contacted by Marco Palmieri at Pocket Books to start working in the Deep Space Nine universe with him. So I was sort of her first writing partner and beta reader on all of her stuff. She ultimately introduced me to Marco and, um, and all of the stuff that I had ended up developing for specifically from Star Trek Voyager, kind of ended up serving me well when the time came that I was able to um, actually start working with Pocket. So there was a little, a little more to it. I mean, I... Go ahead. What? 
I was like, that, that's actually amazing. I mean, it, so you're saying you're never really that interested in writing or, or never felt the compulsion at least to write something before Star Trek Voyager. No. No, wow. I mean, I, you know, I, I ended up getting my first degree in, in college was English literature. Um, it sort of sounded like, I don't know, a safe thing to do. Like I had to maybe get a job with it. Uh, I don't know what that job was supposed to be. So I had done a lot of writing, you know, for school. And it was something I had always been really good at. I mean, I was the girl who could start the term paper at 2 a.m. and have it done by 5 and have it get an A, you know. Um, but, but I didn't really take any joy in it particularly. And what I found was that um, once I got out of graduate school and the work became slower, I mean, you just, you know, you can't control how often you get work. You know, there were just a lot of long nights where I didn't have a lot to do and I still needed to do something creative. And um, writing kind of solved that problem for me, you know, and it was years of doing it just for myself and, and on stuff that I was interested in that was never going to sell that, um, taught me what I needed to know, you know? I, I think in that much, you've definitely got a lot in common with, I think, all writers, I mean, who start for whatever, but I'm absolutely astounded that Star Trek made you want to write. And in a way, it's, it's brilliant, because I feel like you really deserve to be where you are. I'm sure there are a lot of writers who would, you know, I'm, I'm myself as a writer, would love to write Star Trek. And it's nice to know that someone who's been given the trust of a, a full series, really, in the books, that, you know, it's met, Voyager made you want to write. I really feel like you the best person just for that, right Voyager who else was better qualified than anyone who was given the passion by that series fantastic yeah it's kind of funny and and the other part of it is um the the part that I kind of skipped in the middle there was that after I had sort of submitted my scripts and they had been rejected there was kind of no reason for me to keep doing that but I kept watching Voyager just as a fan of the show um because I just enjoyed it thoroughly and and I really enjoyed a lot of the actors who were working on it um but there was a point uh, shortly after the beginning of season four where, as a fan, I started to get really frustrated. And I ended up um, writing a very snotty letter to Jerry Taylor, who was still the producer at that point, <laughs> basically that I was supposed to be working for her. And she um, surprised the crap out of me by writing me back and telling me, OK, fine, come in and pitch, um, which was something that they also did for a lot of writers at that stage in the game that I didn't know about. So... Not only did I get my first writing experience there, but I got my first pitching experience with them. Um, I went in and the first person I met with was um, Brian Fuller, who was an incredibly kind and generous man. It was his, I think, first season there, too. Um, but his passion for Star Trek knew absolutely no bounds. And um, he was just an incredibly helpful guy right from the start. So for the last um, four seasons there, four, five, six, and seven, I guess, I went in once or twice a year and pitch story ideas. So I had, by the time Voyager ended, I actually had, you know, reams of material that was all Star Trek Voyager that had never seen the light of day and never would, you know, had, had the pocket stuff not come along. That's brilliant. That inspires me for the future. Definitely. If there's still a massive bag of Kristen Bear Voyager ideas to come. <laughs> Kirsten, I'm curious now, have you, besides Voyager and, and Star Trek in general, have you ever had to, or, or have you ever had the urge to, uh, kind of write your own like new fresh stories in in a completely different universe where you have to you know write your own rules your own uh, logical consistency and come up with all the rules of your own universe and everything. Yeah, absolutely. I've done. Um, there was a, was a story that sort of caught my imagination shortly after I started working on Voyager, and I worked on that project for a number of years actually. And it was through that that I ended up getting 
more ties to the film world. Um, I ended up getting my representation through my agent. And that was a completely original universe uh, that was based on the concept. And this was obviously years and years ago of what would happen if you could talk to God on the Internet. Hmm. And um, so there was this whole universe around that. And it was, you know, I'd been working on it for years when they did that show. I'm not going to remember what it was called, but it starred Amber Tamblyn, I think, as a girl who talked directly to God. It was a CBS thing that lasted a year or two. Um, so I don't think we got it in the UK, I must say. Yeah, like like with many ideas that every writer has, you know, it's like there's this stuff floating around in the ether and you sort of grab onto it. But there's also other people who are grabbing onto it and, and kind of working in the same direction. Um, so, you know, there, I do remember that show. Yeah, I can't remember what it was called. And that's killing me. <sighs> I know it's bugging um, me, too. <laughs> That kind of thing's come back on you recently, as we as we talked about in the uh, in the Q and A we did for the blog. You had a kind of similar experience, didn't you, recently with Doctor Who and the Eternal Tides? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it freaking killed me. Oh my god, do you want me to retell that story? Yeah, I, I personally I love that story so absolutely. Yeah, so I had you know for for the Eternal Tide, one of the first sort of conceptual ideas that I was working on with my editor was this notion of a fixed point in time. She had thrown that out there. And I didn't really know what, you know, she meant. So she kind of went through this, this idea that, that there were fixed points in time, big things, you know, World War One, for example, that are going to happen no matter what. It, you know, even if the Archduke doesn't get assassinated, um, there are still so many things moving toward that, that it's going to happen. Um, and so I had been playing with that idea and ended up settling on that for the main conflict or the main sort of motivation for junior to begin his journey in the book and, um, and wrote the whole thing with that definition in mind. And then, you know, once the book was written and I was able to spend a little bit more time catching up on the backlog on my DVR, one of the things that it included was the last season, I guess it was the second season of Dr. Who was it the second or the third? I, I don't know. I, I love Dr. Who, but, uh, and I loved the David Tennant's, um, I think there were four of those, and I think we've had three now. Two, I can't remember. Anyway, but there was the season that, that the, big, the big thing was the doctor was going to be assassinated, and his death was a fixed point in time. And I, I, and I remember finally seeing an episode where somebody said those words, it's a fixed point in time, and I just died because I knew <laughs> that definition that they were working with in that story had absolutely nothing to do with the definition that I had established. And moreover, I knew that some people were going to then read my book and go, oh, well, she doesn't know what she's talking about because a fixed point in time is blah, 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 blah. And <laughs> of course, they, and, you know, it's, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me that, that people think there's, you know, only one way to do this stuff. But, but there you have it. Yeah, it was, um, I couldn't believe that. I just couldn't believe it. But it's that not the first time. It's many times we've had that happen before. Well, you know, I was asking the question earlier um, about, you know, creating your own universe and, 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 you know, I think I would think anyway, I, I'm not much of a writer myself. The only things I've ever written are small stories that I only I've ever read. And I basically burned them later cause I was too embarrassed to let anyone else read them. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it seems like creating your own, uh, you know, from scratch, your own world where you have to come up with the rules, the logical consistencies being that, that big term. I love that logical consistencies because that's what you know, creating your own world is all about. If you don't have a logical consistency, everything else falls apart. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, in having that, and then and then going back to, like I said, a fixed world like Star Trek, where those rules are already in place, those things are already laid out. Um, 
I was going to ask you, which did you really kind of enjoy more? Do you like kind of taking an established world and established characters and really that, you know, characters that you're passionate about and going ahead and, and creating stories and adventures for them? Or do you sometimes more prefer the freedoms of being able to create your own world and, you know, your own uh, rule sets and stuff like that so that you have that kind of open-ended freedom to, uh, you know, change the story at a certain point in time by, by, you know, explaining some new rule or some new power, some new thing within the universe that, you know, allows a, a new avenue to be explored within the story. Both come with their challenges and their freedoms. Um, and I enjoy both, I think, equally, to be honest with you. I've had um, a novel that I've been working on for about five years now. Um, I first started working on it shortly after I finished uh, the Buffy book that I wrote, which was the third novel I ever wrote. I did a Star Trek Voyager novel was the first and a short story uh, that was Fusion and Isabeau's Shirt, um, which all happened around 2006. And then I did an Alias novel and a Buffy novel. Um, and after the Buffy novel, my agent came to me and said, you know, everybody in the Midwest is crazy, go nuts for chicks and vampires. And you just wrote this book in like 10 minutes. How hard would it be for you to do an original version of something like this? And so that got me started on a story in a universe that has now obviously expanded well beyond that. Um, and what I've learned about that part of it is that it's much harder to go from scratch, as you can probably well imagine, mm -hmm. because whether or not it's ever going to appear on the page, there is so much more information you have to know as the writer to develop your characters and your world consistently. And particularly when you're going to deal with what's essentially magic, superpowers, you know, all of that kind of any, anything that's not strictly of the mortal science explainable kind of realm, um, you need to be really hard on yourself about the limits that you place on stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you're never going to have any obstacles, right? <laughs> because right, if anything exactly. is possible, you can do anything. So, so developing the internal consistencies of something like that is super important and super hard. The, there's a lot of comfort in the established universes like Star Trek. Um, and there is so much material to work with because you don't, you're not just dealing with the, you know, hundreds of hours of Star Trek that have been produced, obviously, but when you zero in on a show, in my case, Voyager, you've got, you know, 140 some episodes of these amazing performances by these actors where, you know, every moment that they're working, they're breathing life into these folks. And there's all kinds of stuff that never got expanded upon or further developed for any number of reasons that's just sitting there for you to play with. And um, for me, that's really the fun and the challenge of media tie-in writing. It's like a puzzle, and I love puzzles, I always have, where you know, you've got this big picture, but there are little tiny pieces missing, and you, you go in and you're trying to find that missing piece and really develop it and, and add that to the big picture. And it's, it's, it's hard in its own way because there's limits and of course, it, this isn't a sandbox that I own, so people other than me have input into directions that I go, um, and that can be frustrating. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's also incredibly exciting to contribute to something that's this massive, you know, in terms of a story and a cultural phenomenon. So, I was going to say, that's something that um, I, I have a lot of fan questions 
for you. Um, a lot of people really curious about how much you put into the stories and how much is done by editorial. You, know, you mentioned earlier on your editor came up with the fixed point in time idea. Um, how right. much are you given beforehand, especially with a book, say, shall we say, as the recent one, The Eternal Tide, where you resurrected Jamie, a huge moment in uh, the Starship book series. How much of that yeah. was kind of provided to you and said, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. And how much did you go, well, can we do this while we're doing that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I sort of knew this was going to be one of the questions tonight because, yeah, there's been a lot of questions about it. And I want to start off by saying um, this. It is. It absolutely depends project by project. When I came in to do Full Circle, there was a great deal of editorial oversight, um, more so really than any other book I've written for any of the media Italians because it was so incredibly tied into other projects that were going on at the time. So when there is a need to um, to connect stories, the story that I was writing in Full Circle not only was connected to the four books Christy Golden had written before mine, because we were picking up right where those left off, but it also had to be tied into a number of books that had happened after that where Voyager characters were featured. And then, of course, the Destiny trilogy that David Mack was working on at the same time. So at that point in time, what ended up happening was not only did I have my editor sort of corralling all of us, but all of the individual writers who were working on books connected at that time, David Mack, Christopher Bennett, Keith Candido, uh, Mike Martin, and I feel like I'm forgetting somebody, Bill Leishner came in kind of towards the end. Um, we were all sort of a little, little writer's room online and were reading each other's manuscripts and discussing various character issues and, and things like that as those project developed. So that was that's one kind of way that this stuff happens. Um, in the case of Voyager after that, because I had then taken my ships and my people back to the Delta Quadrant, where we weren't going to have so much interaction with the rest of the Star Trek universe for a while, I was more on my own. So, um, you know, for the, for the next couple of books, essentially the editors were like, tell us what you want to do. If that works for us, that's, you know, we'll go forward. And that's kind of how that happened. Um, then came the Eternal Tide which was a little different because when the editors came to me to do this book, there were other issues beyond just the scope of my book that were again, going to be relevant to Star Trek as a whole. And um, I can't go into a lot of detail about that kind of stuff because it's really not my story to tell, but um, they had good reason for the choices that they wanted me to make for this book. And once they explained them to me, I completely and wholeheartedly agreed with them. I'm going to talk in a minute about some of the things that those reasons weren't because I know immediately going to go, oh, well, then it was because, but, you know, and I, I don't, I, we need to clear up that stuff as well. But, um, but in this case, the most important thing that, that they said to me or that they asked of me, I guess, um, was that this needed to be sort of a big event book. The stakes needed to be incredibly high. The choices need to be really bold and there needed to be significant changes to the landscape that we're going to impact all of the characters and have all kinds of sort of rippling down effects going forward. So it's not every day you get asked to write kind of a big event book, but in this case, that's what they wanted. So that's what I was asked to deliver. Um, the other thing that happened, which really surprised me, but you know, it is what it is, was that the editors involved had decided that um, they really wanted the Eden story that I had been working on since Full Circle to tie in with the queue. 
I guess they thought from reading what I had already done and, not, and then not really asking me anything further about it, that that's the direction that I was going in anyway. Eden was somehow going to be revealed eventually to be a Q. So I was kind of surprised when they brought that to me because um, it wasn't at all what I had in mind. Mm. But as with anything that your editor gives you, it, you know, I as a writer working in a franchise like this don't feel comfortable just saying, well, bite me. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, I mean, if if the editors gave me something that I really felt like I could never develop into a story that I thought I could make work, I would just walk off the project, you know, or ask them to ask somebody else to do it, um, knowing full well that somebody probably would. But if I can find my way clear in any way, shape or form to integrate what they're asking into what I've already developed and what I think would still make a good story, then I really do try to run with that. The problem with making Eden a cue is threefold. The first is that we don't want to tell or I don't want to tell stories that have really already been done before and or done to death. So for me, the idea of just making Eden a cue and she doesn't know it yet. Well, we saw that story on Next Generation with True Q and Amanda Rogers, right? Yeah. And then there's the idea of making her immortal who somehow is going to gain Q powers. And we saw that done in TNG as well with the episode where Will Riker has made a Q. So I wasn't seeing an opportunity there for a lot of fresh stuff. But I still wanted to honor the involvement of the Q in the story. And I still felt like having the Q be connected to it was going to be really great material in terms of expanding the scope of this story, creating the, the kinds of, you know, multiverse altering stakes that the editors had in mind. Um, so I was the one who asked if I could just make her Q kryptonite as opposed to making her Q. And they really liked that idea. So that was the direction that we then continued to develop. But the third and more important problem there is that if at this point in time, you know, I'm a reader of a Voyager novel and I open the page and I see a capital Q there with no space before or with space before it and after it, then I need to know what the Q's involvement was in Before Dishonor. I don't think it was, I don't think it would have been fair on any level to tell a Q story that didn't also explain why the Q were involved in the death of Admiral Janeway and where Janeway and the Q went in the epilogue to that book. So then the conversation turns to, well, you know, if we're going to involve the Q, we have to involve Janeway. And how do you guys want to do that? And the good news was I was given absolute latitude to um, include as much or as little of that as I wanted to. And, you know, while they would have been perfectly happy to have me tell the entire story of Eden, reveal all the connections with Q and have Janeway appear on the last page in a flash of light and ask for a cup of coffee, I didn't honestly think the fans were going to be cool with that. So no. I really made the decision that if we're going to, if we're going to tell this story, then we're going to tell this story and we're going to make this book um, as much about resolving that question for the readers as it is about resolving all the questions about Eden. So I know that there are a lot of people who um, have picked up the book, who are excited about the book um, who are absolutely certain that the reason this came about is because we decided it's time to bring back Janeway. And what I meant when I said in the acknowledgments to the book that this story was required was really that, no, the decision was made to involve the queue. And if you're going to do that, you kind of have no choice as far as I'm concerned, but to also tell the Janeway part of that story. So that's where we are. Are you, are you familiar with the story? Uh, and I'm, it's going to kill me now. I've been trying to think of it for like the last five minutes while you were talking, but it was another old book I read 
um, where beyond our galaxy, outside of our, our galactic border, uh, that were, was another group called the Zero, and they were kind of a Q kryptonite type of thing like that. Uh, they were uh, on par with the Q, but they were hostile, and that the Q created the galactic barrier around the outside of our galaxy to keep yes, them out. That was, that was the, the Greg Cox wrote that. That was a trilogy he wrote. Yes, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a great book, and I was just thinking, like, I was like, oh, that kind of like, okay, so now I'm curious, like, what parallels are now with Eden and, and stuff, you know what I mean? Like, where where can ties be made with that story, you know? I'm like, how, how do you, it's almost think, creating this second tier of superpowers within the galaxy at the, at the Q-type level, and, and what are the interrelationships between those groups with those power types, and, um, and you know, how does it affect the, the universe as a whole outside of our galaxy scope? Yeah, the, the first thing that I did when I became aware that this was going to be a big Q story was I went back and I read every single book that has been published so far that had Q in it, and I rewatched all of the Q episodes from all of the different series because um, I'm weird and completist like that. And n- not so much, I mean, to have the opportunity to build on something somebody else has done before is always nice. In this case, I, what I realized was that I wasn't going to be able to do that. Um, nothing that any of those guys had established in any of their work, except for Q&A in a weird way, um, was going to support the direction that I needed to go. Because again, with Eden, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to retell anything. And I also had, there were certain things about her past that I had established in terms of her relationship with her uncles, quote unquote, you know, um, who, one of whom ends up being her father, obviously. And her weird connection to these artifacts and the story that those were trying to tell her that had to be tied in. So I found myself needing to really um, deepen and make that story as fleshed out as I possibly could, which kind of left me no time to um, kind of delve any further into into ideas that other folks had, had run with. You know, and it was it wasn't too long into the process where I realized, you know, holy shit, what I'm really doing here is I'm defining the origins of the queue. I wonder if everybody's going to be okay with that. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, they were. So, you know, yay, but scary at the same time, you know. I personally think you absolutely pulled it off. As a longtime fan of the books, I was really impressed with uh, The Eternal Tide on many levels. And I think there are a lot of readers like me who are, are really picky, you know, and you can so easily make a misstep. Mm-hmm. You know, I said about Peter David when we spoke, you know, um, I, you know, many fans were unhappy about that. And I think a lot of fans didn't realize how much editorial was involved. I certainly didn't until recently. Um, but that actually brings me to something else that with the queue. Now, there was a lot of buzz on the Internet after um, that Peter David had remarked. I haven't been able to confirm this, I must say, but, um, you know, these things happen. And he remarked that they had asked him to put that moment just before her death with the female queue. Uh, obviously, a very Voyager queue as well. Do you think or do you know if they... Actually, put that in in Tesla because they always plan to involve the queue. I mean, you said it was something they asked you to put in. I mean, has that always been the big idea in bringing Janeway back? No, it hasn't been. It, the, the way that we brought Janeway back really only developed after last May when we started developing this book. Um, and I don't believe that the editor's motivation in using Q in this story had as much to do with, oh, it'll allow us to deal with the Janeway thing, although they were certainly open to that as it was Q's relationship to Voyager. Because, you know, we had had three or four Q episodes during the run of the series, some which I thought were pretty strong, like Death Wish, and some which I kind of thought were less strong, like the Q and the Grey and the whole um, Q2 thing. But um, 
it's a matter of you're you're looking for a story that's going to have massive implications to it. You only have a number of choices. I mean, you can have a really big, powerful enemy like the Borg, who you know has to be stopped. Um, you can have some sort of spacefaring creature that you know has some sort of issue or whatever. But for the stakes to be really high, looking at sort of ultimate powers, our our working definition for that in the Star Trek universe for a long time has been the Q. Um, I don't know that we, we've seen other sort of omnipotent, all-powerful kinds of beings. I know there are some in the original series. Um, but in the sort of modern era of, of Star Trek, it kind of comes down to the Q. So I think that the thing that they had latched onto with Eden and the possibility that she could be a Q, as well as the opportunities that using the Q could potentially provide us to make it a really big story, had more to do with that than um, that having also been the back door that that Peter David was asked to create um, for the Janeway character. It was more about scope than a safety net for Janeway. Yes, absolutely. It was all okay. about. It was really all about scope. Yeah, and as far as the as far as the Peter David thing, um, it's been publicly stated both by him and his editors that yes, he was asked to write Janeway's death in that book, and once it was done, he was then asked by the licensor, which is CBS, to go back and create that sort of open ended ending so that if at some point in time anybody wanted to run with it, they could. I think it was, I think that's, you know, it's a covering your bases thing that the folks in charge feel strongly that they need to do from time to time. And I think as readers and writers, it can be frustrating because my impetus is just tell the damn story. I mean, if you're good, if you're going to kill them, kill them. If you're not, don't. But I don't control a, you know, multi-billion dollar franchise. So... (laughs) I'm sure my concerns aren't going to be the same as theirs, and ultimately they get to make those calls. Yeah, but I understand what you're saying because you have to protect the integrity of the storytelling. Otherwise, um, you end up with the death of Superman from DC Comics, which is where they had this big thing. They finally decided to kill Superman, and they killed Superman. It was this epic big thing, and then, of course, they brought him back like within a year, and everyone was pissed, and then after that, they'd kill every superhero twice and bring him back ten times, and everyone yeah. got mad and yeah. stopped buying comics from DC because they didn't protect the integrity of the storytelling anymore. You know, you right. can't, you can't have the eternal backdoor, the eternal safety line for these characters. If, if you want people to take it seriously and have emotional connections, because, you know, otherwise every time you, you know, injure, hurt, kill somebody, just, Oh, he'll be fine. Uh, whatever. They always come back, you know, and, and they won't take it seriously. Exactly. And, but at the same time, it's, it's weird because we're working from a TV universe and the reality of a TV universe is that we all know everybody's going to survive it. The point of the story is not, um, are they going to die? Are they going to come back? These folks are under contract. And on some level, all the, all the people watching these shows know that. So anytime we see a character facing that kind of jeopardy, we we always know it's going to work out somehow because it has to, the fun of it becomes solving the problem. You know, how interesting is the solution that we come up with, to reset the the stage at the end so we can start over again the next time. Um, The weird thing about the books is that we don't necessarily have to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're working in a media tie-in situation where anybody new coming to these books is going to have a certain expectation that they're going to bear some resemblance to what they've seen on television that they already love. So it's a very tough line to walk, especially since we're telling the continuing stories, we're not just going back to in-series kind of stuff. Well, this is an adventure you never saw before. 
which is what the books did for a long time, you know, they were consciously picking up now and taking these stories forward. And you want to be able to create realistic stakes and keep people interested. But yeah, at the same time, you want to have that kind of integrity. And this whole Janeway issue has been a really tough um, case in point sort of of that. Um, Because, you know, as I've said many times in the past, the intention from the beginning was never to jerk people around. This wasn't a situation where they were like, oh, yeah, we're going to bring her back in four books and everybody will be fine and whatever. The intention was seriously to explore how the death of somebody as important as Janeway would affect those she left behind, because frankly, that was a story we hadn't seen before. So making that choice gave us a really unique possibility. But then it also creates problems in that, like I said, when you go back and you say, well, now we want to use the queue. Yeah, okay. But you can't just ignore, you know, the reality of that either. Hmm. Uh, So bringing us on to the probably the biggest fan question about that book was um, obviously what happened to the rest of the fleet, the uh, fate of four ships that uh, you destroyed right. the Margaret Maker's lovely, beautiful fleet. And a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of fans were uh, really angry. I personally must say I, I found it refreshing, like you're saying. You have that kind of TV idea that everything's going to work out. And, of course, they're not going to destroy these ships. Don't be ridiculous. And then when they did, it, it did feel like they needed to happen. It felt good for the story. And I really felt like you'd gone somewhere that, uh, you know, I didn't expect you to go. But a lot of fans, you know, obviously were making voodoo dolls at that point. So, I mean... Yeah, what was the, the what was the kind of situation behind that then? Um, have you had any feedback from the fans over there? Well, again, that was that was an issue of scope, uh, and and the sincerity with which we were going to present this, you know, universe-altering kind of threat. This was, as I said uh, in the when I answered your question, that um, this was this was the actual issue that my editors and I went back and forth over more than any other when we were developing this story uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, I could anticipate the varying levels of fan reaction going into it um, that sort of works in your favor and works against you. Meaning I knew if I destroyed a whole bunch of ships, there's the chance that people are going to be surprised and care and be like, oh, wow, I didn't think they would ever do that. And they actually did that. Okay. And then there's the chance that people are going to be like, well, who cares that they destroyed the ships? I mean, obviously, they're going to build new ones. And, you know, I mean, they had new shuttles every other week on Voyager. So what's the big <laughs> deal? So it's it's a really it's a tough line to walk. Then there's also been the the reaction that I've read a lot that says, well, they had just, you know, started out with too many ships and it was too hard to keep track of everybody. And the canvas was just too big. So clearly they had to just destroy a bunch of ships to get rid of all that and just tighten the focus of things. And I really found that amusing because it, it's so completely not true in that by giving yourself this this broad canvas and this vast number of characters and ships, it just becomes a tool in your tool belt, you know, but it doesn't mean you have to take it out and play with it every single time you write a story. If the issue is we want to keep things more Voyager centered or um, only have a few characters kind of beyond them that we're dealing with, it's very easy to just send the other ships off somewhere for a while and let them do the thing and never tell that story. So it's not like the only way to narrow the scope is to go ahead and just blow everything up so we can just start over. That's, that's not the thinking. Um, the issue really was if, if I'm going to present a threat that has the potential to end the entire multiverse. So the very end of everything, I have to find a way to make that real for the readers. And 
if I just tell you through the characters, oh yeah, this is really bad. Everything, everybody could die, but nobody actually does. That feels a little bit dishonest. I mean, I would hope in the writing of it that people would take my word for it, but I don't expect them to, you know? So the conversation was really about how much are we willing to sacrifice and how much do we need to say in order to strike the right balance between conveying the magnitude of the threat and the reality of the threat um, and also not just making people shut down because of the sort of natural reaction that you have to sort of destruction on that scale. And the other issue being that, you know, we, we just recently did this, this destiny thing where 63 billion people were killed. You know, I'm looking at a fleet that has, you know, a few thousand people on it. And even if you destroy all of them, you can't begin to touch the magnitude of where we've just been. Mm -hmm. And so part of me is like, why would you bother? You know what I mean? The, 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 the sort of the impact that that kind of destruction can have on readers, it can have that once, you know, but then after that, everything is just sort of a pale comparison and doesn't really kind of interest me. Um, so I had a lot of problems. I had a lot of issues with, defining exactly how much we were going to lose. And, you know, the, the, the editorial point of view was on it, it was as big as possible, as much as possible. So I kind of had to fight for those that we ended up saving. Because um, wow. I just felt really strongly that um, not only that I didn't want to just, you know, destroy everything for the sake of destroying everything, but also because I needed my characters to have a win, if that makes any sense, even yeah. in the midst of so much tragedy. Because, I mean, my feeling is if I'm Chakotay, after all he's been through in the last year, not only the loss of Janeway, but the events of Destiny and the Azure Nebula and all that stuff. And Voyager has been out of the picture for a while. They come back and they see their entire fleet in pieces somewhere. Mm. I think he, you know, turns to his helm and says, engage Slipstream and take us back home. I don't give a shit what destroyed all these ships. We're, we're not doing this again. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so in order for me to realistically be able to put the characters in a position where they would be willing to risk solving this mystery, there had to be something to save and I needed to have them save a little bit of something. Do you know, does that make sense? Absolutely. Definitely. Absolutely. Sometimes yeah. you have to kill F so, Phil Coulson, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't so, know if again? you understand that reference. Sometimes you have to kill Phil Coulson. Um, who was who was a character from the Avengers, you know? But he was this tied-in character who was who was tied to everybody, and he wasn't the guy, but he was an important enough guy that it made that impact, the, the kind of impact that you're talking about, you know? It's uh, you have to have, you know. But that's what what drove the characters, like you said, to to care enough to to then you know join up and go after the bad guy. So, um, you know, that's I completely understand that. I thought it was uh, really well done as well. Um, yeah, absolutely love that. But going to, um, do you want to do, oh, sorry, the reason I asked you again, Kirsten, that question again, not simply is because I left it out of the original blog, uh, just because yeah. I, I thought that would be a big spoiler, actually, I thought, when I when I got it down. But I thought it's a great question. We'll use it for the podcast. But do you want to feed in, James, then, off of that into um, your friendship with Redemaker and, yeah, destroying beautiful ships and what have you. Actually, I was going to, yeah, I was going to tease about that and say Mark doesn't care when you blow up ships because it gives him excuses to make new ones. Um, <laughs> 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 and Mark loves making ships and he's, God, he's good at it. I love his designs. And, um, you know, actually, I, I was curious about that. Um, 
you know, I've, I've talked with Mark many times and, 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 uh, you know, he talks about all his different projects and, and how he consults with you on, um, you know, what you need and, and what the story of the ship is and, and its role in the story and everything. And then he, he goes from into a design concept based on those needs. Um, but I, I was curious from your end, like, where does that process start for you? How do you know um, what ships you need as far as, you know, I'm sure you can figure out and say, okay, I'm going to need this ship. I'm going to need a ship for this and a ship for that. So I'm going to need this many ships. Um, like, where do you start in the process of going, okay, but I need, I need this kind of ship. I need a science ship for this. I need this one to be more of a, a, an escort, a, a destroyer type ship. And this one needs to be more of an exploration. And so where, where does your process to, to kind of come together with what you need for the story, you know, ship wise and head counts and, and uh, you know, technology wise. And then uh, how much of that do you figure out and then turn to Mark and say, okay, here's my list. Here's my, here's my wish list, Santa. Um, bring me these for Christmas. <laughs> well, I actually, Mark came into this process after the fleet had already been settled upon. Um, I, I don't remember exactly when my first conversations with him began, but I feel like it was, I know it was after Full Circle, and I feel like it was right around the time that we were working on Unworthy that he first got in touch with me and said that he was going to be designing the fleet. And I was like, wow, that's awesome and helpful. Um, but but for me, the, um, the issue from the get-go, and this was something that I worked really closely with Marco Palmieri on, who was the editor who I did Full Circle with, was just sort of a realistic question from Starfleet's point of view. We want to explore the Delta Quadrant. We want to do it safely. We don't have unlimited resources. Um, and it's obviously a big quadrant. What can we afford to send and what would be the most useful thing to do? So obviously Voyager is going because they're the ones with the experience. Mm-hmm. And th- we have these pretty new slipstream uh, Vestas that we've created for Aventine and, and whatever. So clearly a couple of those should go. I could have gone with fewer ships to begin with. I could have gone with, like, say, maybe six. But Marco liked the idea of nine, that we could have sort of three working groups constantly going off in different directions and playing off of one another. And then if we needed to have them all come together, coming together for for big problems kind of to be solved. So I wanted each sort of group of three to have their main ship, um, which would have been the, the Coronel and the Escalon and Voyager, and then I wanted each three to have a dedicated science vessel because we're at the end of the day out there for exploration and to have ships specifically tasked designed for that purpose seemed like a really good idea. Um, then beyond that, I had this notion of the special mission ships. Um, and I can't remember honestly how we came down to Galen, Demeter and um, Achilles, but well, Galen was pretty simple. I wanted to have the doctor be part of the Voyager crew mm-hmm. or the Voyager fleet, but it wasn't going to make any sense for him to be the EMH in sickbay anymore. I mean, we're sort of beyond that now. And it didn't make any sense for him as a character. It wasn't going to give him any room to grow. Mm-hmm. So we all liked the idea of giving him his own ship. And it seemed to me that um, without going too deeply into all of the holographic rights stuff that Christie had sort of, begun to develop in her books, um, that it, it would make sense for Starfleet to be testing the uses of holograms, especially now that they've seen what something what somebody like the Doctor can do and can become. So, you know, we have now a, a floating hospital, um, which also makes sense in terms of all the stuff that can go wrong when you're exploring a quadrant like the Delta Quadrant, um, to have 
to have hardcore, you know, more high-end medical facilities there for you if you need them. And then the the Demeter was really about, you know, gosh, what if we needed to have our own food supply for a while? Um, and also specifically what kind of science would a ship like that be working on? And Marco had had some ideas about the kinds of crew members that would be a part of that. There were some species from other shows that he was pretty passionate about. And some of that has had to fall by the wayside um, as we've gone on. But um, but that was kind of where Demeter came from. And then Achilles was really there to save the day should, should things really go horribly bad as they kind of did in Children of the Storm. I, I didn't expect to use Achilles the way I did quite as early as I did in the series of books. But, um, but once we crashed Coronal, it, it made a lot of sense to show the capabilities of, of a ship like that. But then it also kind of begs the question, well, the Alpha Quadrant's in pretty bad shape right now. Shouldn't a ship like that be, wouldn't a ship like that be more helpful closer to home? And that's, you know, kind of a tough call. So, but at any rate, that's kind of where we were, what the thinking was when we were first designing the fleet. And then, like I said, Mark came to me and, and started working on them individually and kind of in no particular order. And it seemed like every time he had just finished one, I was destroying it. So that was, that was, that was bad, but you know, I, 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 I do what I can. And, and the fact that they're, the fact that they have been destroyed doesn't change the fact that they existed and knowing what they looked like and, and how they worked and all the work that he's doing. It's not like it's a lost cause because it, you know, it, it still happened there it's just um and someone will reuse those ships i mean they are very beautiful they'll definitely get reused just under new names won't they starfleet can always build more ships absolutely well look at the vesta i mean the avatine you know obviously kind of being the big test bed and everything but now there's like all these vestas out there i mean you know so there's there's always more ships like you said that you can reuse now uh, one other thing i am curious about though um how much detail are you handing him uh, for the different ships, like like let's look at Demeter. That and, and remind me if I'm just in case I'm getting confused because I've seen so many Mark's designs. But that was the um, Vulcan Andorian hybrid, correct? Yes, it's got yeah. the rings. The the cells are the rings. That yeah. And right. and to be honest, I only recently saw that ship for the first time and just peed myself. It was isn't so it awesome? Gorgeous. Yeah, right. I told oh, Mark it looked like a flying God, dagger. I, 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 I thought it was incredible. Yeah, I saw it and I went, oh, I probably need to start describing that ship a little bit better in the text because that's freaking gorgeous. And nobody right. has said a word about it um, up until this point because I didn't know what it, I mean, I sort of knew roughly what it looked, but I saw that picture and I died. It was so awesome. So yeah, See, we'll, that, we'll be getting more discussion of Yeah, and that that's kind of actually, that's why I'm curious about that is because, um, you know, I'm curious about, you know, do you see the ships before you write them or, you know, how much do you get? to him before he gets it back to you before you write you know just so that you know kind of what you're you know because you see your own picture in your head but then what if mark comes up with something completely different you know and then how do you you know oh well but i described it like this you know so he's been great he has great about taking the very minimal descriptions that i have given and working from there he has never openly contradicted anything that i had already established here here's the thing for me i I don't come at this stuff from the technical side of stuff, either in terms of the ships themselves or the technology within the ships. I have a really, really kind of bare bones understanding of how all of that stuff works. I just trust that it does because we saw it happening every week on television. So um, for me, the stories are about the characters and what their journeys are and what they need in order to keep moving forward and the kinds of obstacles I can put in front of them as they move along. Um, everything else is cool, 
but kind of relevant only in as much as it directly impacts that kind of that part of the story for me. So um, in a lot of ways, Mark and I are a great <laughs> pair in that he is so deep into the technical aspects of things. And I am so deep into everything else that our work really complements each other and doesn't tend to get in the way of each other as we're moving along. And so far, there haven't been any instances where I've needed something that he couldn't provide or he's needed something that, you know, that that disrupted anything that I was working on. Another one of the more um, interesting conversations that he and I had actually also came about during Eternal Tide because of the saucer separation issue with Voyager. Um, oh, yes. I knew that I, as I was coming into the, the final act of that book that we were going to have to get a bunch of people to safety. And my initial impulse was to use escape pods, although that would have been very difficult given the way Omega worked as sort of this big fracturing thing. And guaranteeing the safety of those escape pods seemed like a pretty tough thing to do. And so my editor came up with a, well, just do a saucer separation thing. And I was like, oh, wow, I don't think we can do that. I don't remember ever seeing that on the show. Does Voyager mm -hmm. do that? And uh, the response that I got was, if Rick Berman had needed it to for an episode, it would have. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was yeah, like, oh, the, okay. There's always, there's always something written in. Well, it, you know, Voyager had that huge um, uh, escort shuttle that was actually up underneath the saucer section. Yes, uh, yes. That they never used. They never took out. But if you look closely underneath the saucer of, of Voyager during any of the shows, you could see the outline of a ship that was actually tucked up inside the saucer that could drop out. And it was just, it was really large like escort shuttle and they never used it ever yeah. ever ever uh, and so it, yeah. it's one of those things it's it, they, but, they'll but, write in whatever they need <laughs> yeah yeah and 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 actually the editors went back to cbs and said you know would this have been an issue and they were like oh yeah no absolutely if we'd wanted it they could have so whatever um so uh so that's what i took to mark and he was like yeah but no, they can't do that. <laughs> and so that was kind of an interesting conversation because I was like, yeah, but they're gonna. So the um, the nice thing about it, though, just in terms of in-story stuff, was that because Voyager had been beaten all to hell during Destiny and basically completely rebuilt, it was very easy to justify the notion that it had been rebuilt with that capability. And that probably, because Voyager is one of the first Intrepid-class ships that went out and then got lost for seven years, meant the idea that the Intrepids that came after Voyager could have been redesigned to include that, and then they would have just refit Voyager with that capability when they rebuilt it. It, it all made perfect sense, although I'm pretty sure it took some people by surprise when it actually happened. But, you know, again, that's it's fine. You know? The refit is gorgeous that Mark is doing, too, for that for the Voyager. Oh, and yeah. I, I know he sent yeah. you some of the pictures, and he, he shows me a lot of that stuff, and he's always very clear that, okay, this is top secret. You can't show it to anyone else. <laughs> but he always likes to send them to me because he likes my feedback. And, um, yeah, it's incredible. And he actually sent me one of the pictures with the saucer separated um, and the new yeah. uh, long right. nacelles and everything. And he was, <laughs> he was just telling me the other day when he sent that to me, he said, I actually, I mocked this up for, for Kirsten because of the story she's working on and they're going to do that and he's like and it caught everybody off guard so they need to know what it's going to look like <laughs> so he mocked yeah, that up he exactly. said he sent it off to you <laughs> exactly exactly but that was also a fun moment to write in the book to actually have Janeway realize that they were going to do a saucer separation and she didn't remember the ship being able to do that so that was that was for me that was fun too 
Yeah, that's true. That that gives a a fun thing for the story, I guess. There, have Janeway go. We're gonna do what? Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're separating the ship. We can do that. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it. In some ways, it's fun to know how the sausage gets made, and in other ways, I think it's just probably going to be very disturbing. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, you don't always want to see the uh, <laughs> the cow they slaughtered yeah. to make your hamburger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two. It, I used to think two things: laws and sausages. You never want to know how they get made. And really, now I'm thinking laws, sausages, and Star Trek books because, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, <laughs> there are days when it seems like none of us know what the hell we're doing, but somehow it all works out in the end. It's a mystery. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've we've covered like nearly all of the fan questions that I got really, um, just going through the whole process. The the only other thing that I'd um, like to ask you is obviously you came on board after Christy. We've mentioned a few times Christy Golden wrote four Voyager books, yeah. um, and she yeah. did what I think everybody thought would be awesome in the series when we were watching Voyager. I think God, it'd be cool to see what happened if they were in the Delta Quadrant. It'd be cool to see Voyager against the Romulans and, and things like that. And then we got it, and I, I think we kind of realized that actually Voyager does need to be in the Delta Quadrant. That's where it is. Otherwise, it's just next generation with different characters. You know, um, and but so you know they didn't get the greatest review. They were decent books, uh, but what was it like coming on board after that? You know what I mean? After coming on after Christie, and the series really, I mean, uh, had been kind of left uh, in re- compared to the rest of the series. You know, Deep Space Nine had had a huge service with Avatar and everything after their finish, and obviously Next Generation always gets great stuff. Uh, but Voyager had really got a couple of collections, you know, uh, a few stories set within the series, but it hadn't really been taken forward at all. Well, that was that was a combination of story issues and then real world uh, human being issues in that um, Christy had done her books and then the editor who had been working with her moved on and Marco sort of took over as the Voyager editor right around the time it was time to start thinking about Voyager's 10 year anniversary. And what he really wanted to do was a big event trilogy set during the run of the show as opposed to continuing forward. So for the next couple of years, that's when we all developed the String Theory trilogy and the the Distant Shores anthology. So that was 2005, 2006, um, which was, I think, maybe only a year or a year and a half after the last um, Christie book had come out. I feel like when I was working on Fusion, I was reading uh, the Spirit Walk books at the same time. I can't remember for sure, but it, I don't think it was that long after. So that was an editorial choice based on the fact that we were doing the anniversary thing. And then it wasn't too long after that that Marco turned his attention to, okay, now we need to pick up Voyager from where it left off. And by that point in time, Christy was already doing a ton of work elsewhere and very happy doing it. So it became clear that he was going to need to find somebody else to work with. Um, so he asked me to start thinking about it, and I did. But it wasn't too long after I had begun my work that then work began on Destiny. So I know it seems like there was this huge gap between um, the end of Christie's books and Full Circle. And I guess real time there was. But we were working the whole time on how we were going to take Voyager forward from there. And the further we went, the more sense it made to keep it interconnected with everything else that had been happening. Also because even though they weren't telling strictly Voyager stories, during that time when um, there were no Voyager books coming out, the Voyager characters were being used all over the place by other writers. Janeway was in a bunch of the A Time Two books. She was in the the Articles of the Federation. The Doctor was in that. Tuvok was being taken over to Titan. Um, so there was all this stuff that, that was going on 
people were still seeing these characters, but then it was my job to sort of pull everybody back together and start Voyager off in another kind of new direction to set the stage for telling sort of just future Voyager stories for a while, you know? And for me, it was a no brainer that they needed to go ahead and go back to the Delta Quadrant in terms of differentiating them from Next Generation and Deep Space Nine um, stories. I, I just, I really felt like that was critical, but, but I didn't want to just retread the, you know, we're not going to send them out there and get them lost again. I mean, that's, we're not doing that. Um, let's that would have been out. terrible. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 uh-uh. And it's funny because I keep reading people reacting to the eternal tide and the destruction of the ships and all that. They're like, oh, well, they're just trying to reset the status quo. Janeway in charge, the ship is lost, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, my God, no. <laughs> you know, at least not as long as I'm writing it. There's there's no fucking way that's happening. Um, <laughs> Fantastic to hear, absolutely. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> I was going to ask about that because I, I spoke to um, David Mack um, briefly after he'd uh, written Destiny. And the big question I wanted to ask, like I asked you, was how much of this was given to you by editorial? How much did you come up with? Because obviously he changed so much. And uh, he said to me that the only brief he'd been given was to, to avoid, to do a trilogy of books and to avoid the new J.J. Abrams movie, which is ridiculous when you consider what he's done. Um, but how, how you say you were already writing, so how, did you have a considerable amount of work done and then Mac drops Destiny and you're like, God damn it, Mac. Do you know what I mean? Yes, that's pretty much exactly. I think like you're reading <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I had, I had a, yeah, I had a whole other thing going. And, but the, but the interesting the interesting part of it is is that the one thing I knew was that Janeway was going to die, um, because the because before Dishonor was in the works before Destiny, and um, and so I knew I knew way way back that that you know long before it actually came out that that's what was happening. So I was always working with that piece of it in mind. But yeah, I had oh, I'm going to say six six versions of the story that that uh, eventually were almost completely scrapped. Um, when when I was handed the, de- the outlines for Destiny and then basically started over. Um, so, yeah, that was big fun for me. But, hey, you know, <laughs> you do what you got to do. Yeah, there must have been so many writers, so many of the other, like, regular Star Trek writers who must have hated that guy the second they found out how much he changed. You know, there must be so many potential stories rolling around that were just wiped out by that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't hate him for that. I hated him because it was so good. I, yeah, I mean, I bet... I read the outlines and I was like, "Oh fuck you! This is brilliant! God damn it!" You know, <laughs> it, it was more. It was more a matter of how high he was now setting the bar for the rest of us. That was like, "Well, okay, <laughs> I guess if we're going here, then then everybody, you know, strap in because here we go." I mean, it was yeah, it was um, it was awesome. It was that was such incredible fun to be a part of that whole thing, and and I never cared about what we you know. It, as a writer over the years, I have learned you cannot get too emotionally attached to anything that you've developed or working on because it's always going to change. You know, um, once it gets out of your hands and you start collaborating with other people in any way, shape or form, whether it's a screenplay or a novel or whatever, everybody's got ideas and things that they want to see that somehow you have to be flexible enough to be able to work in. I mean, there are a handful of writers on the planet who get to play in their own universes and do whatever the hell they want. And until I'm one of them, the reality is, you know, you got to be able to work and play well with others. And when you give yourself over to that, as opposed to fighting it, it becomes a lot more fun. So that's what I always try to do. 
because it's really it's, it's almost it, you you're all kind of like together there's say like should we say i don't know around about 10 like really regular star trek writers so you all it's almost like a chain letter you know you're all continuing the story and then just chucking it to the next person and like deal with that mate you know what i mean it sounds a lot of fun yeah 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 it is and the, and but there are also there are also folks who do more standalone stuff and who just don't necessarily work with that mindset you know they've got an idea for a story and as long as pocket approves it and they're going to tell it that's what they go ahead and do. Um, I just, I can't, I can't work that way. I, whenever I'm working on something, I'm always getting back in touch with all the other writers who are currently doing stuff to make sure that it's not going to either screw them up or to offer them insight into what I'm doing that might help them going forward. It just, to me, it's, it's the only way I can do it, you know, cause I see this thing as one big tapestry. It's not just my world, you know? Hmm. Absolutely. Well, it's you've been absolutely fantastic, uh, Kirsten. It's it's been absolutely brilliant. It answered a lot of questions. I've always wondered, and I know from the questions I've had from the fans a lot, everyone's wondered about the process, how much you get, and yeah, it's been absolutely brilliant. And again, Eternal Tide, absolutely marvelous. The best book for me since Destiny. You know, um, absolutely, absolutely. And and do you know what my favorite thing about that book was? I only realized the other day. I um I got the book on ebook because obviously I'm in the UK, we have to wait a lot longer and I'm impatient. So I downloaded <laughs> them and then I go and buy the hard copy. And uh, I was in Warston's only this week and I saw for the first time the hard copy of the Eternal Tide. And immediately I was shocked by the fact that it's tiny compared to the other books, you know, just in the size. And I didn't get that feeling at all while I was reading the book. You know, normally you get a book, you say, oh, well, this is only about 250 pages, bit good. I love the 500ers, you know what I mean? But I read The Eternal Tide and never once guessed that it would have been any shorter. It was as gripping, you know what I mean? It had the scope. Well, it, it, actually, yeah, it, it wasn't shorter. It, you know, the of the four books that I've done um, in this relaunch thing, the longest was um, Full Circle, which came in at around 134,000 words. Um, both Unworthy and Children of the Storm were closer to 100, 105. And then um, Eternal Tide was closer to like 120. Uh, the reason why the book seems thin, and it did to me too, I was amazed when I got it, um, is was simply a choice of page number, uh, font size, and the kind of paper that they used. Um, and I have no control over any of that, but I, I remember I got the book and I was like, wait a minute, I know I wrote more than this. This is yeah. <laughs> not possible, but you know, that's the miracle of typesetting and what can be done, um, when they set their mind to it. I think I was just going to say that the, that whole ebook thing though, did create one kind of interesting and unusual problem for me in the case of the eternal tide, which was had to do with all of the, uh, cue scenes. Um, because I had written those scenes um, without any sort of description. It was, they were all pure dialogue. Uh, and I made that choice consciously early on because as I was imagining being in the queue continuum, from the point of view of a queue, it didn't seem like there would be any need for that sort of thing. So I wanted to see if I could make that, that work as a device, right? Um, but without he said, she said, that sort of thing, there were places where in the rhythm of people talking, I needed to have pauses. And um, in order to do that, as I was working on the manuscript, I would just insert a space or two and actually spaces of differing lengths to sort of get, give the reader a, a clue about what the character who was speaking or who wasn't speaking was feeling. It was just sort of a almost a poetic thing that was happening as I was writing it. Um, and when it came time to actually finalize the manuscript, my editor was like, yeah, you can't really do that. 
And I was like, why not? It's just, you know, it's an extra space on the page, whatever. He's like, yeah, eBooks. People are going to be changing the font sizes. They're going to do this. Gonna do that. There's no way to format it so that that will always be true. And I was like, oh, uh, that's a shame. But he was totally right. You know, um, so it was it was it was weird and kind of heartbreaking and, you know, but very true. You know, sounds like so. an interesting mechanic, though. Nonetheless, it was a shame we didn't get to see it. Totally understandable. But it, it would be nice to see different things done within the rules of writing and possibly, you know, just as a writer. But. Um, yeah, it's nice to see when people break out, like, you know, in Star Trek, we have very much this communications, so we have italics, you know, and things like that, and there are rules for the way things are, and it would have been nice to see a new one, but yeah, that's yeah, shame. Yeah, it was, that was, uh, that, that broke my heart, but, but he was right, I mean, I've been, I've been fighting and fighting and fighting up until that point, he's like, yeah, ebooks, I was like, oh, crap, because I didn't <laughs> do that all the time, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm constantly changing the font size and, you know, moving things around and whatever, and it's like, oh, shit, that's right. So, yeah, brave new world. I know, it kind of sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> it's well, it's great everybody yeah, gets yeah. the ebooks, you know, but yeah, there's a little bit of magic being lost, I think. I don't know if you guys have heard of but Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't know if that's as big over there as it is over here. But a great example, I think, of modern society destroying good literature. Um, I don't know, did you guys get that? <laughs> I assume I assume you got it. It's the biggest, it's the most selling book, uh, fastest selling book of all time, isn't it? I mean, doesn't that make you just want to forget how to read? You know, um, that's quite terrible. But yeah, yeah no. did you get that over there in America? Yeah, there's. I, I, it's actually quite a big running joke over here for a couple things, but <laughs> I'll, I'll stay away from that. I think it's a big running joke the world over for many good reasons. <laughs> but yeah, just kind yeah, of sick. I have it's hardly the first instance of something that a lot of professional writers don't um, can't wrap their brains around being popular, being insanely popular. I mean, it just, there's just no telling what people are going to latch on to for whatever reason, um, which is one of the reasons why, and this is just to take it back to eternal tide for a second, a question that a lot of people have had about fan input into the stories that we tell um, and writing for a, a particular audience, you can't do it for primarily the reason that you just do never know. You can't be looking to please other people when you're writing um, because you never know what people are going to like. Do you know what I'm saying? It, Absolutely. What you're doing has to come from yourself and your own integrity. It's a story that sort of only you can tell. Otherwise, you're going to get completely lost trying to figure out how to make everybody else happy. So you can never do that, you know. The fans of Star Trek tend to not believe that. I, I think they don't want to believe that. But anybody who's written, I think, for themselves or certainly professionally knows that it has to work that way. All that stuff has to get shut out uh, for you to tell any kind of story that, that uh, is going to have any meaning for you or is going to work for you. So I think at least we can all be grateful that people are reading. Do you know what I mean? Whatever they're reading, it's great that people are still reading in this kind of day and age of so much media. Uh, it, it's always good to hear. Even if it's a book that you think, oh, my God, why would anybody publish that? At least they are actually picking up a book and reading, you know. Yeah, no, I agree to that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I do, it seems like every so often there's conversations about uh, the printed page dying. And I just, I frankly don't see that ever happening. I just can't imagine that as a species, we're not going to keep having a need to tell our stories to each other. It's just, it's how we're wired, I think. I don't think that will ever change, although the medium um, make, is, gonna, is definitely going to continue to evolve. You know, I was somebody who never thought I was going to be able to enjoy 
reading books on a Kindle. I just, I have a collection of, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books all, all over my house and in boxes in my garage. I mean, I'm, I have treasured the feel of a book since I could hold one, you know, mm. and um, even now introducing my daughter to books, I can't imagine buying where the wild things are on a ebook. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm not, totally. Turn those pages and smell that and see those amazing drawings in, in the size. And yeah, I just, I can't. But what I have found incredibly useful is for just pure research. And when I just need to get through the words um, and, and for travel, you know, the, the whole ebook thing has been uh, a, a godsend. So I'm grateful for both. I don't think we're ever absolutely going to lose uh, either of them, you know. But that's just um, me talking. Absolutely the same. Absolutely the same. A massive collection of books and really took me ages to get onto the Kindle and the ebook. But it, there are so many benefits. It, it's so convenient. Again, like you said, for research, you know, whenever I'm doing a book review, it's brilliant to be able to put search and just blast through the book. Um, and yeah, again, as long as people are reading, it, that's just the main thing, isn't it? You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, I yeah. Think, yeah. I think we've uh, we've pretty much got everything. I think I've covered um, all the fan questions, or you've covered the fan questions, um, really. Oh, one tiny question, and it was asked by a few people, so I get it in, so I don't piss everybody off. Um, but you, if you could go back into the series, into Voyager, and write at any point, say you could have had that TV show, you could have had that script, what era or season kind of time of Voyager would you have liked to have gotten your script into? Would you say prefer the seven and nine time to the Kess era, or is there any area where you would like to put, you know, Kirsten Bayer's script? Well, the you know there are a couple of uh, alien species that we encountered over the years that I really would have liked to have seen developed further, and I may still. So it, I, I don't want to talk too much specifically about that, but That's cool. That's what cool. I will, but what I will say is that. Um, I would probably choose the, the later seven of nine seasons only because that, as I did in the eternal tide means I get to use Kess if I want to. Whereas mm. if I'm with, as if I were to go back and work only in those first four seasons um, or three seasons, what did she leave? Yeah. three four. seasons. Yeah. That, um, that, that, and I can't have seven of nine and, um, and so, so I, unless I had, unless there was something really specific I felt needed to happen in those first couple of seasons, and to be honest, they're not my favorite seasons of Voyager. I found mm -hmm. the Kazon intensely tiresome, and a lot of the people that they encountered just weren't, I don't know. I, I think the show got a lot better as it went along. Pseudo-bad uh, guys? Four, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I knew what they were doing there, but, and, and actually, very funny, the guy who was one of the main Kazon, Maj Kala. Uh, his name is Anthony DeLongis, and he was my um, combat instructor at UCLA when I was getting my master's, and he was an amazing guy. Uh, he was the guy who taught Harrison Ford how to use his whip in the Indiana Jones movies. Um, wow. And from time to time, you'll actually see him on television doing some of the, some of the, some of the uh, documentary programs that we have now about weapons and um, like sharpshooter and things like that. He's, I've seen him appear in things like that. He's still very busy and doing a lot of that kind of work. So it, it saddens me to say that the Kazon were not my favorite because I actually knew him. But, um, but yeah, you, you know, going back uh, that far would probably not interest me as much as um, some of the later stuff. That's, uh, that's fantastic. Great answer. Absolutely. Great little bit of trivia in there that I'm sure a lot of fans will absolutely love. 
Um, yeah, I think we have uh -huh. absolutely uh, everything. Is there anything else that you want to put uh, to James or anything I've missed? I, I have a request. It's a, it's a small request because you're really the first Star Trek writer I've, I've gotten to know even for five minutes. Um, Star Trek mm -hmm. has a, a terrible, terrible habit since I've known Star Trek from TOS all the way through. Um, they, they just, I don't know what it is, but whenever it comes to any type of ground combat, they have terrible terrible tactics and and and, <laughs> and it's like their hand-to-hand -hand combat is like the cheesy captain kirk you know karate chop and, and i mean just all the way through you know it's just their tactics are terrible their security teams and it's like i i just look at this and i go here's a species that's gone through we've got special forces and delta force Navy. you know we have the best tactics in the you know in the world and, and this has gone all the way through history and it's like somewhere after World War Three in Star Trek history, and you know Zafran Cochran, it seems like from then on nobody else knew tactics, and it just <laughs> kept going. And so, you know, I'm a ground combat guy because I was a cop and I did SWAT and all the stuff in the military. And all, but, you know, and so every time I watch Star Trek and they do it any time of ground combat, it's just awful. It's just, it's just <laughs> terrible, terrible, terrible. It's poorly done. I mean, it's like it's like the British, you know, redcoats marching out in a line and just getting shot down. That's what it's like. It's just. It's awful, you know. They're even in red shirts for crying out loud, you know. So please, if you if you get a chance to write some ground combat, I mean, call me if you want. I'll I'll be your advice. I will give. I James, I would. It's just it kills me. Okay, can I ask you a question? Because sure. okay, this is admittedly this is an area where I would be very weak. Um, knowing that you know from the get go, because again, that's not something that I that kind of fight choreography is not something that I have a. A, that I'm very deep in, in terms of, of uh, actual experience or knowledge. Did you read Destiny? Have you read the Destiny books? Not all of them. David Max trilogy? Not all of them. I read okay. the well, because... actually I read the first one and the last one. <laughs> I kind of read the beginning and the end, <laughs> and that wasn't by because choice. It just I, happened I... to be the way it played out. <laughs> well, well, because what I'm wondering is that of all of the books that I can think of in a long time, and I'm not dealing with the televised stuff because that comes with its own issues. Um, I remember feeling as I was reading a lot of Max scenes where they were dealing with more close combat situations, particularly, uh, I think in the battle with the Herogen, which might have been in the book you missed in book two, that, uh, that he had really done a lot of work in choreographing that stuff in a way that made me feel, uh, a little bit claustrophobic and a little bit, um, like it was messy in a way that TV fights and film fights sometimes aren't, uh, and in a way felt more true to me than I think a lot of what we see and, and probably what you're talking about. So I'd be very interested to know if you actually read that, if, if that gets closer to what you'd like to see, or if it's still just all, all BS and not working for you. I'll have um, to go back thing, and, and look at it um, just to be sure, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the other thing I was going to say is as you were asking the question, I was immediately thinking, well, how much of that might have to do with how far we've come as a species, I mean, it's not just that we've got, you know, ships that fly at warp and we've got phasers and replicators and all that stuff. I mean, at some point in time after World War III, as we as we moved beyond this need to constantly fight with each other about everything and, and sort of came together to, to move outward into the universe, um, is it possible that just not focusing on that kind of stuff or not having the need for it changed us in a way that, that you know, we're not going to have those issues? Now, 
it seems like when we go to alien worlds and we confront other populations that from time to time we find ourselves in situations that are very similar to some, the stuff that happens now. You know, uh, you go to, I'm thinking about losing the, losing the peace where um, there's, a, there's a refugee camp and there's a small number of officers there sort of trying to handle the, the people there who are displaced and hungry and frightened and whatever. And, um, and there are some crowd control issues and how sort of messy that, that gets, you know, and I'm imagining, you know, riot situations that I've seen film of where you have the line of police with their shields and their helmets and, you know, trying to sort of, um, move forward in a line, you know, dealing with and dispersing a crowd. And, um, but, but to me, I think it's just sort of more rare now in the stories that we tell where, where we have those kinds of needs and, and probably people are following back on, you know, what they've seen of just individual hand-to-hand combat. I don't know. It, it, for me, combat is really tough to write. Um, those scenes are just tough to write. It's very hard for me to um, visualize them in such a way that it's going to make a lot of sense for the reader. Um, I don't. I personally don't spend a lot of time doing it. Yeah. Well, and that's and I, again, that's you know, that's probably a symptom of too. I mean, I'm I'm sure you've never spent a lot of time doing ground combat. <laughs> you know, and 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 so it's not something you think about or situations you've never been in and, and so you don't think about it and and I guess that's probably a symptom of mine is the fact that I've, I've been in those types of things when when I see these situations and these stories you know that's why I go so bonkers I'm like no you, you know they have these technologies then and I'm just like these things aren't being utilized and why did they do this you know um, you know I was teasing about the stories that I've written for myself that I'd never read to anyone earlier but one of them was a quick little Star Trek story about uh, the resurgence of the Makos because within the game that we play that the Makos are making a comeback and that was like their elite military unit and stuff. And, um, and it was a rescue right. story. And it was about this team mm-hmm. of guys, uh, elite guys that had formed to do this rescue of a dignitary on a planet. And it, it was all about this scene of them. Um, the, 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 the story starts off with uh, the rescue. And they're going through and they're using these great technologies and they're throwing up this little magnet on the wall that it's actually a shield generator and cuts off a hallway so that they can't be followed. And all these great technologies and stuff that have never been used in, in, in the stories and you know the tactics and things that could be utilized within Star Trek. They just make it so much more exciting. Um, and uh, you know, at the end of it, you find out uh, at the end of the rescue, you, you find out that you know, they walk up to this admiral and the whole thing's been a run through in the holodeck. Um, you know, it wasn't actually happening. They were basically showcasing their capabilities to this admiral to get permission to pull off this rescue. Um, right. Um, you know, but it, it's just those types of things when when I when I see those types of things play out, um, you know, in my mind. And like I said, I'm not much of a writer as far as vocalizing that. I'm sure would be harder, um, unless you know you got someone like you who just has better uh, you know writing skills and you know I could probably explain something to you or show you something and then you could write that out in some fantastic way um mm-hmm. but uh, I I don't know I just I just think there's so many different scenarios where um where things could be just done so much more um just more excitement, you know, and, and showing how much more, uh, you know, and it doesn't have to be gory or bloody or any of that, you know, and that's, that's the great part of the technologies they have. Um, you know, it, it could be done so much smoother actually with less bloodshed and, and so much faster because of those technologies without ever, you know, having to kill anybody, um, you know, f- yeah. for crying out loud, they got stun guns, you know, and, and stuff like that. It's, it's great. Right. Um, so, but it just—it it, it just seems like the Star Trek always falls short in that. Uh, anytime those scenarios come up, I'm always left uh, disappointed. And ship combat's fantastic. I love the ship combat, but every time it falls to ground combat, I always find myself going, "Why?" <laughs> yeah. You know, I think part of it too is that you know, 
so much of it feels to me like because of all the technology that we have and because of the priority that we place on peaceful exploration and diplomatic exchange and force being the absolute last resort. I know it doesn't feel that way in a lot of the most recent books, but but that really is in the back of everybody's mind as far as when you're writing Star Trek, these are the order in which we're going to approach these sort of situations. Um, that when we finally get down to just plain old hand-to-hand combat, we have really failed at some on some basic level. You know, things should never get that far. Sometimes, obviously, they do, but we have so many things that we try to do first to solve the problem. Um, right. You know what I'm saying? Although, it, it, thinking you talking about that actually took me back to uh, a scene that I wrote early in Full Circle where um, Belana's daughter is taken from this small room in the, in the monastery that she's staying at, and she has to run in with Batlets and a couple of other Klingons, and there's like six of them in a room fighting it out over her child. And, you know, I remember... Uh, the care with which I had to think about the choreography of that. Um, a lot of it, too, depends on whose point of view you're in. Uh, there's a convention in Star Trek books where each scene that you're writing is told you're, you're only in one character's head at a time. And so, and when you think about combat, even between two characters, it's, it's very much the dance between both parties in, in what's happening moment by moment. But as a writer, I'm only getting to tell you that from one person's side. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so it, it, it might increase some of the richness and depth that you're looking for if, if that convention could be broken. But in Star Trek books, it actually can't. So, I see. Yeah, I and that could be a it, symptom of that. It's not I don't something know I've thought you... about. I don't think I'm going to. Well, and, you know, I just, they've just, they've had so many different, I guess, especially in the last of the, you know, the next year movies, I mean, you had like a million different boarding parties when, you know, uh, the Remans are coming on board and, and trying to kidnap a card and then in Insurrection where they're on the ground fighting with, the, you know, the other, it seemed like they were yeah. on this run and of course the, the whole, whole Dominion War. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and it just seemed like epic fail after epic fail. <laughs> they were coming up with these tactics and I was just like... You just think, you know, is is events well, and even you know, if even if you want to, you know, like you're saying, you know, and I had had the thought of, okay, well, maybe they're just in this mode now where that's, like you said, it's not a priority and it's not really thought about a lot, um, you know. But then you have the Klingons who are very warrior culture; they're just all about it, you know. And even their tactics are a bit, you know, it's just kind of fail. It, it always seemed to me like Star Trek never had a good ground hand-to-hand advisor or something like like they like yeah. and not even like the the physical when i say hand-to-hand uh you know not even the physical like grabbing of each other or or, or that kind of hand-to-hand but i just mean ground combat tactics you know like entering a room and clearing a room or, or rescuing a hostage you know with a team or anything um it always just seemed like the jumble of guys like okay everybody just go in and, and shoot anybody's bad and run back out you know there was there was no okay clear this hallway <laughs> and check this you know it, it, you know I'm a SWAT guy and so I was like no they're not they're not even checking the corners you know I'm just like <laughs> you know it's just it's like a miracle that anybody got out alive you know what I mean <laughs> yeah 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 I do I do and, I totally do. yeah it's just funny All right, well, now so I'm in trouble. Yeah, I've, I've always yeah, wanted to no, see... Now, right, well, no, no, you're not <laughs> in trouble. No, but, you know, I, I've always just wanted to see, like, one... I, and that's why I said you're the first writer I've met. So I was, I've always wanted to see one writer who just 
who just like you know who at least tries you know because i never see anybody it seems like they don't even try you know they just oh they rushed in and this happened and there was an explosion they got out luckily and they went under the cover of night you know it's um yeah i mean why did they use transporters because you know if we really need to go in and get somebody isn't that the cleanest way to do it um but but yeah i seriously though go back and if you if you have a chance go back and look at that section of, of um of the second Destiny book, and and let oh, me know what you think because I that that in particular of late struck me as a as a pretty compelling um, set of scenes uh, of something like what you're talking about. Okay. Although it wasn't definitely, a ship, yeah. I mean it wasn't it was ground forces stuff. It was they were on they were taking over. It was a it was on the ship, so it was, it was well, on the and, and that's well, and and same thing. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying that basically you're on foot. You know, what I mean, whether it's in the decks of a ship or or on the ground in a building, it it doesn't matter. Just but you know, well, yeah, and is it possible they're they're trained with? I mean, because some of the technology that they have, tricorders and such. I would I'm, I'm thinking about security officers now. There's information that they might have about what, what a thing looks like that we don't have because of the magic of their tools. You know. So, like, they don't have to worry about clearing things the way we do because they already know what's there to some degree. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Well, it, unfortunately, I'm cursed like Mark. And I think of the other aspects. I go, well, what if they got cloaking devices or what if they have counter scanners that jam that? You know what I mean? <laughs> and just, you know, basically. Yeah, then, you know, then I guess we're all dead. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, and you, right. you see it in, in real life for every piece of technology we would create to give ourselves an advantage. Somebody will inevitably create some piece of technology that cancels out or takes away that advantage you know so and that's just the nature of technologies yeah. and stuff so i remember thinking about it a lot when i was working on the first part of children of the storm which mm-hmm. had to do with uh this infl- the ship was infiltrated by this very alien kind of creature that uh had the ability to i mean they were basically like these floating bombs and um had the capacity to do incredible damage as they moved throughout the ship but because we had never encountered them, we only had one We had one uh, encounter with them in Destiny very briefly. So we didn't really know all of their capabilities. And I remember the amount of time I spent actually trying to figure out, like, as I, I in my first drafts as I was working on it, uh, just sort of moving this the plot along the way I wanted it to be choreographed. And then going back and thinking, well, but we've already known, we already know a little bit about what these people are capable of. So if we were smart, wouldn't we have already done a few things before we even got there to protect ourselves and ended up going back and working those things into the into the strategy and it made the whole thing a little bit more complicated so it's definitely something that i know i think about um when i'm putting together action sequences like that um because i i don't want our people to constantly be challenged just because they were too dumb to anticipate right. what might <laughs> right. happen to them. Do you know what I'm saying? Thank um, you. <laughs> so, so you, you. You do try to find that balance of, of you know, because you, they, they, we can't be all powerful. Otherwise there's no conflict. Um, right. But, but you want to, you want to wait the conflict so that both sides actually have a chance and right. we don't know so, until the end who's going to prevail. Right. Cause you got to have suspense and, and that, and that I understand. Yeah. You don't want to make any one side so good, but that's the, the magic of that too. For again, like I said, the technologies, you know, even you say, Oh, well they're moving down this hallway. Okay. We'll throw up a couple force fields at bulkhead this and bulkhead that. And we got them trapped in the middle, you know, then you've got this, like you said, this fantastic creature who's floating guy. Well, he maybe floats through a wall and then floats out on the other side. And they're like, well, shields don't work because they can penetrate walls or what, you know, yeah. you could always come up with some counter yeah. technology to give the advantage back to the, the adversary. So, but at least it shows that yeah. they're yeah. like trying, you know what I mean? They're thinking it's like, I can't, yeah. 
it's just an endless list of times where you're like, well, why didn't they just do this? They've done it a million other times, you know, but it, it would totally ruin the plot <laughs> of some story, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so they never use yeah. that tool because that would just – the story would end right there, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, I think it's also a matter of how much time you can spend on any given section doing what you do. You know, we we do write these stories on a deadline, and uh, and so always there are things that have to give as we're moving forward. Um, and I, and I know that for myself and for all the writers that I work with now, we, we certainly do the very best that we can with what we got. And, um, but if we're falling short in that area, I'm going to, I'm going to pass that along. <laughs> well, it's, it's just a personal note anyway. I don't know. Maybe no one else really cares. I mean, I, Overall, I have zero complaints. The, the books I've read in general, and I've read several different Star Trek books, including a couple of years, and, and I think they're all great. And, you know, the biggest part of Star Trek has always been the cerebral part of the story. The action has always come second. And, and what makes the action unique truly in Star Trek is the fact that, of course, it's in space and you're using spaceships to have space combat, you know. So ground combat kind of goes to the second on, on all the time anyway because there's really nothing unique about that you can do that anywhere anytime in any other story we have you know you want to use the uniqueness of the tools of that universe uh to really make mm-hmm. it fantastic and everything but um you know it's just it's always been a pet peeve of my own you know it's just one little thing so you said like i said since you're the first writer i've ever gotten to tell it to you know i i always told myself if i if i meet somebody that can actually do something with that information I'm going to tell them, even if it never goes anywhere. That way I can say, look, I told them, okay, but, you know, they, they're going to do it. But they just won't listen. Yeah. If they, no, they, they want to karate chop an alien, they're going to karate chop an alien, all right? How can you not love Starfleet Orion? I love the karate chop. It has, it's got its charm. Starfleet oh, the, Orion. The, the, the double-fisted where they put both arms yeah. together and do the, the double-armed swing punch thing. And, it, yeah, these – yeah, they're that's deadly. That that is deadly, mate. <laughs> just terrible. Just awful. <laughs> uh, there's so many, so many things I would change to just make them so much more exciting, you know. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's fun. I love it when Riker does the same kind of Kirk chops and everything. It's part of that charm for me. I totally see what you're saying, you know. And, yeah, they're always like when you know something about a certain area, you're always going to nitpick. You can't help it. But yeah. I, I think the kind of cheesy combat for me is that shout to the original series. And I don't know, there's something warm and special about the cheesy double-handed axe chop that takes out a million Gorn. You know what I mean? Sure. It, it, it's got that Star Trek thing to it. It's brilliant. Well, and I mean, you know, there's a certain amount that's forgiving because, I mean, you know, you're talking about the time frame when that was made, the budget in which it was made, and and what it really was at the time. It wasn't meant to be taken, you know, god-awful seriously, you know. I mean, it was wagon train to the stars, and and it was, you know, it was done on a shoestring budget, you know, and and Lizard Man was obviously, you know, Plastic Head, and just, you know, the Gorn, (laughs) you know, those things... Don't ruin the Gorn for me there. (laughs) Well, you know what I'm saying? You know, it's like... you almost expected to see the the the, uh, the fishing line on the Star Trek Enterprise as it flew across the screen. You know, it's just, uh, you know, that was that. It's forgiving to a certain time frame, but you know, as as things have progressed, you know, and the level of sophistication now with stories and um, and movies and television and all that kind of stuff, I, I guess you just expect them to to step it up, you know, to that next level and and really deliver on on those things. So, but uh, but yeah. Anyway, enough of that. 
yeah. let's wrap up. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Kirsten, you've been absolutely amazing. You've been so generous with your time, both yes. earlier with the Q&A for my blog and then to come on and talk to us. It's been absolutely amazing. Really enjoyed it from start to finish, I must say. Well, as did I. It was great talking to you guys. Yes, thank you so much, and thank you for indulging my little bit there at the end on Go Crazy. <laughs> it's totally fun. We're uh, get another book. Uh, you released the next because I mean you have said before. You said on my uh, Q and A for my blog, you you're already working on another Star Trek novel for Voyager. You're carrying that on. Hopefully, you'll be willing to come back and talk to us at some point in the future. Maybe about that. Oh no, I absolutely would. The we we don't have a release date at the moment, an exact date, but it's going to come out early 2014. So I'll be working on it. Um, uh, over the next six or seven months or so. Bated breath, absolutely bated breath. Cannot wait. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait either. It's, it's. Um, I'm, I'm really happy with, uh, with what we've come up with, and so, uh, yeah, it's gonna be fun to do. Can't wait. I won't press you anymore on that because we know you probably can't give us any kind of details at this early stage. But uh, yeah, really excited yeah. for it. The, the, the last books really have taken Voyager and, and pushed it up to that level that everything else I felt was at. And that had Voyager had kind of been left behind. And I really feel now that Voyager is probably one of the strongest aspects of the Star Trek series. So yeah, cannot wait for the next book. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. It's nice to yeah. hear. You need oh, to I pass your mark and tell him to, to hurry up and uh, finish his, his rendering of the, the uh, Voyager refit so you can use that as your cover art. <laughs> They don't let me do stuff like that. It's not up to me. I get to write the words and everything else is somebody else's job. And they just, they don't, uh, they don't bring me into that loop. It's, it's above my pay grade, apparently. Oh, bummer. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know. But it's still, but as a writer, it's, it's, it's incredibly helpful to have. I mean, like I said, I can't thank Mark enough for, for all the help he gives me whenever I'm, you know, in the weeds and going, God, what deck is that on? He's the guy. <laughs> <laughs> And he always knows. So, so yeah, he's, he's been he's been brilliant. Wow, great stuff. Thank you again, Kirsten. It's been absolutely amazing. As a, a massive fan myself of Star Trek books, and I believe me, I read every single one that comes out and have done for many, many years. It, it's been an absolute pleasure and a joy and an absolute pot of gold of awesomeness, I'll be honest with you. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for your time. You are most welcome. Thank you guys for taking the time to do this. And uh, I'll be happy to come back and talk with you whenever you like. Thank you. We look forward to that. Okay, give my best to Mark, too. Will do. complete.